Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 345th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Lori Van Dusen. Lori is the CEO of LVW Advisors, an independent RA based in Pittsburgh, New York, that oversees more than $2 billion in assets under management for more than 450 small to mid-sized institutions and ultra-high net worth families. What's unique about Lori, though, is how through her multi-decade career, she's built a deep expertise in the investment intricacies and complex issues that face small to mid-sized institutions and ultra-high net families with tens of millions of dollars each, and has built an RA that focuses on that serious investing expertise as her differentiator. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Lori built her in-depth investment knowledge while working with large institutions and endowments at wirehouse firms like Shearson, Lehman Brothers, and Citigroup Smith Barney. How Lori approaches portfolio management with an approach of don't fix what isn't broken and assumes most large portfolios she manages will only need incremental changes from what they're already holding, which she identifies by stress testing every portfolio and hidden levers to identify where they need to be shored up further. And why Lori and her firm developed a governance calendar to systematize and scale their quarterly deliverables and check-ins with ongoing clients. We also talk about how Lori dealt with being sued by Citigroup and the lengthy legal battle that ensued after she decided to break away and go independent, and how she ultimately won because she was diligent in following broker protocol when leaving. How Lori learned the hard way about conducting her own due diligence on advisor platforms after the RA she decided to join upon leaving Citigroup didn't really quite have the level of technology at the time that she thought they did to support the business, which led her to decide to leave them too. And how Lori ultimately dealt with the aftermath of deciding to leave that RA she'd partnered with to launch her own independently, only to discover that choosing to transition twice had many of her institutional clients starting to lose confidence in issuing RFPs, which ultimately led to many billions of AUM leaving that Lori had to rebuild. And be certain to listen to the end, where Lori shares why, even though she has experienced turmoil in her business, she tries to maintain a positive outlook because without those experiences, she wouldn't have developed the specific expertise or become the advisory firm owner she is today. Why, after dealing with a personal tragedy and not coming back to work for a year, Lori realized that she had finally built the team support she always wanted and decided to reward her loyal employees and not just advisors by offering a deferred compensation plan and defining clear pathways to equity ownership. And why Lori believes that younger, newer advisors would benefit most from finding a mentor that can help them grow and be objective about their own strengths and passions so that they can focus their career on what they are good at and love to do to build a successful career of themselves. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Lori Van Dusen. Welcome, Lori Van Dusen, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here, Michael. I'm I'm excited for today's episode and and talking a little bit about what it's like to to build an advisory firm that uh, I, I guess as, as as I'll put it or even as as you put it on your, on your site that that takes investing seriously uh, and and like not that so many of uh, advisory firms that run on an assets model like don't take their client portfolio seriously. I, th- I think we all do and take the the fiduciary and stewardship responsibility seriously, but 
But I find a lot of advisory firms these days, like even when we're still operating on the assets and our management model, like you have to go three pages deep on the firm's website to actually get to the part where they where they manage investments. So there's almost a like, we'll lead with anything but the investments because we want to talk about the financial planning and the wealth management and the rest. And just, I was fascinated when when we were first looking at having you on the podcast and I was looking at your website and you have just this opening statement on the homepage of the website, the art of serious investing is a commitment. And that you just sort of lead with this framing of we're serious about investing here. And then as you get deeper, you do a lot of financial planning and wealth management and have some pretty cool deep stuff with institutional world that we'll get to talk about as well. But this idea of it's okay to lead with being a serious investor. Uh, and just, I'm, I'm fascinated that you are, you are, you seem very comfortable in that space, just in an industry that I find is shying away from that in recent years. Yeah. Very, very comfortable, very, um, grateful that, uh, we have the history we do. So I started in, uh, the warehouse industry, um, at Shearson Lehman Brothers. And I was actually hired by Lehman Brothers in 1987. So that might give you a little indication of why we do take investing seriously. Um, I started my training in the World Trade Center and, um, really built business around um, understanding the client first, but also understanding all of the investments, what they were struggling with, where things were um, in their financial life. Uh, it, it was a long time ago. And what I recognized back then is everyone was dialing for dollars and selling products. And I just thought, you know, I deeply need to really understand um, what people are doing, um, why they're doing it, what problems they're having, and what these investments are. And we may get into it, but I had no background in investing when I started. They just hired me because I passed all the tests. Um, and I had no idea what I was getting into. But um, once I was there um, and I started to have some success, one of my clients and I was cold calling, everything was a desk and a phone, said to me, um, you know, what you do is really different. You look at the whole picture, you dig deep into the investments. I sit on the board of this, it was an, a large not-for-profit related to Cornell University. And he said, you know, I'd like to refer you in there. Uh, and I didn't know anything about institutions or that kind of investing, but that's how it really started. So our roots were that first in institutional client, um, which was a foundation, pretty large foundation. I loved it. I started to study everything I could. I started to learn everything I could about different kinds of not-for-profits and institutional investing and grew a practice around that. And when you come from those roots, um, it's all about accountability, transparency, being good at what you do. You can't um, BS your way through a meeting. Uh, there are multiple decision makers. A lot of them are professional investors. So I guess I would say, you know, um, in, in short version, I have been lucky to be around a lot of really invest 
in, uh, professional investors who are luminaries who've taught me a lot because they sat around boardrooms and I was the advisor. And so our history is really steeped in kind of institutional investing. Uh, and that's why we lead with it, because I think we are good at it. And, um, and there are certain investments that should be very simple and easy. And there are others that are uh, take a lot of due diligence to understand and are difficult, but can really move the needle and diversify powerfully in a portfolio or add returns. And um, I think uh, that's just how we think. It's, it goes back to 1987 <laughs> when, I, when I started. So, so for those who aren't familiar, because you know, our podcast in general has skewed more towards advisors that do uh, sort of call it financial planning, wealth management with individual clients and aren't necessarily as heavily in the institutional space or to the extent they are like some of us may have small to mid-sized 401k plans, but not necessarily like sizable foundations in the context that you're, that you're talking about. So help us understand when you say things like, you know, we, we lead with institutional investing and we built this, this institutional investing framework. What does that mean? Or I guess, how does that show up as different than what you may be doing for, you know, the, the individual clients and I'll call them like the, the mere millionaires who have a good amount of individual wealth, but are individual clients as distinct from an institution and a foundation. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think we um, we have integrity across portfolios, but of course, with individual or high net worth, ultra high net worth clients, um, there's different complexities. You have to worry about taxation, for example. Um, there's a lot of differences, but um, from an investing standpoint, the, the the powerful thing about coming from the background that we come from is that. We understand the investments that a client or a prospect brings to us. We try to understand them fully. We don't fix what's not broken. We have learned more and gotten some of the best ideas from portfolios that are brought to us when someone is changing an advisor. And that comes from the institutional space because you would have to underwrite every single thing that an institutional investor owned in their portfolio, an endowment, a foundation. And these were usually colleges, universities, other kinds of not-for-profits that we've served over the years. Um, and then what we would do is, is keep the things that we thought were really good in the portfolio and and give advice and be additive, we hoped, around those existing investments. So don't fix what's not broken, but add things that are powerful diversifiers or can add return. And um, I come from a music background, so I, I say this a lot. I think in orchestration, and I've tried to teach people this, that you don't want to add so much to a portfolio that you dilute returns and you don't want to have concentrated risk so something is really amplified and goes wrong. And so understanding the real source of return and stress testing portfolios is something we do across every client, whether they're a high net worth client, whether it's a million dollar, $5 million or $100 million, $200 million portfolio, that is the same. Stress testing, really understanding what's in there, not fixing what's not broken type of thing. So I think there's an interesting framing there relative to 
particularly where I feel like the individual wealth management realm has evolved in recent years. You, so many of us have tried to scale up the business by you know, building standardized model portfolios, centralizing them into trading and rebalancing software, putting clients on one of a consistent set of models. That way, the investment management can be centralized to an investment management team and the advisors can focus even more on the financial planning. Uh, but it strikes me part of what you're describing here like, is sort of an implicit out of the gate. Yeah, if you're going into an institution, like they're not coming to you in all cash and you're not ripping everything out. Or at least if you want to try, you're going to have so much more work to do with their investment committee to make the case of why each and every single thing in the portfolio is going to be replaced. Like That's just not how you do it. You come in to say, no, 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 you're going to look at all the things they have and you're going to try to find something that's an incremental improvement. That's how you add value into the picture you can't right. come in assuming like, oh, I got a great model portfolio for your long-term endowment. Let yep. me show you the you know current versus proposed of changing everything you own. Yeah, you can't you can't go into any situation assuming anything um, because you know I think one of the the things that maybe I I hopefully have taught people is go in with a clean sheet of paper, look at everything objectively, and again, you know, keep the strengths. Once you understand the client, and by the way, institutions and individual clients or families are somewhat similar in that, you know, the investments don't live in a parallel universe. They live in an organization for a purpose, and there are stresses that you need to understand. So you really need to understand the financials, the donor base. There's a lot of complexity, you know, what type what's being lent out, you know, what's their leverage, what do they, you know, what kinds of lines do they have, what's real cash, what's not. There are so many things that you need to understand about an organization, just like an individual. And then the investments, then you look at the investments, that's that's secondary. It's really important, but first you need to understand the context and then you can solve a problem or you can recognize a problem or say, wait, wait a minute, you don't have enough liquidity or you have way too much of this or that, or here's how we can improve it. Um, so that's similar, but yeah, we are not a firm that stuffs everybody into you know a model portfolio. Having said that, um, we have embraced technology. We have embraced a lot of um uh, process and technology that's made made us a lot more efficient and tighter um, because that the, it is difficult to customize everything. But you know, you, you start to get into um, anyone who's managing larger portfolios. No one comes to you with cash unless you're involved in a transaction pre or post. You know, selling a business. Right. Then that's that's fun and easy. But typically people come to you with investments and you have to evaluate them and there's embedded taxes. So it's not, it's really not that dissimilar in terms of approach. So, so when you're building this way, again, like I'm just trying to think of this relative to how I think most advisors do this with an individual client context. You come to me, you work with me. I'm going to put all your investments into an account or several accounts that I'm going to capture as a household. Uh, in general, we try to put clients into whatever our models or allocations are. Maybe they'll have an quote exception because you have an existing legacy position that's a lot of embedded capital gains that we can't sell right now. So sometimes some advisors hold that in a separate non managed account. Sometimes we 
hold that in the account and kind of use it as a proxy for something else and build a completion portfolio around it. But like we've got the account. How does this flow in an institutional context? I mean, if if you know, if a foundation comes to you and they have a fifty million dollar account and they're pretty happy with forty three million of it, but there's a seven million dollar segment that's not doing great and you've got an opportunity to show something better, like is this a fifty million dollar account for you? Is this a a seven million dollar opportunity because you're gonna slot them into something for that $7 million allocation that improves it. And that's your slice of this bigger pie. Like help us understand just how the opportunity sets come together. It's always a $50 million client because we're always looking holistically. I don't think I can think of a circumstance where, you know, someone came to us with 50 million or a hundred million and we only dealt with, 2% 2% or 5% or 10% of the portfolio. It's always, again, um, how the investments exist together. And um, we won't fix things that aren't broken. But in reality, a lot of times, a lot of stuff is broken. Right. Um, so, so what I found to be a distinguishing characteristic of our process and what we do with both um, private clients and institutions is to really start with the understanding of either the organization or the family and deeply understand. So it's not different from many of your guests who talk about deep financial planning. We do that. We just do it on the organizational side as well. Um, and we stress test. And, you know, I learned something a long time ago. It's, it, I don't know if anybody's ever brought this up to you or you ever came across this acronym. And I'll, I'll tell you where it's from. Um, I spent a year at Xerox sales training out of graduate school <laughs> because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And um, everybody said, well, Xerox is one of the best corporations at the time. We're talking 1980, whatever. And I said, okay, I have no idea what I want to do. I have no clue, but I think I want to be in business. So I spent a year or so at Xerox and I went through sales training and I actually was pretty successful there. And then I went to Lehman Brothers, Shearson Lehman Brothers. But at the time, um, they had this sales training and it was... It was based on this acronym called SPIN. Have you ever heard of that? Yes. I've, I've heard of like SPIN selling and that framework. Okay. So it was situation, problem, implication, need. So y- you would have to really dig deep. It was how you could really understand someone is ask them all kinds of open-ended questions about their situation and the problems they're experiencing and like what happens when you go through this. Well, doing the same, taking that same kind of approach means that you really dig deep and you understand the institution or the organization, and then you evaluate the investments. And 99% of the time, you know, the vast majority of the portfolio is probably going to change. But you have private investments that are great. You may have some hedge fund, equity hedge funds or credit hedge fund structures that are great um, that you come across. But most of the, the liquid stuff historically has changed. And that would look more like a model portfolio. And, and that's still true today, if that makes sense. So so help me understand, like, I guess this, why there are so many opportunities and broken things in these portfolios. Like, I, I'm just trying to visualize. It's It's one thing when you work with smaller foundations because often uh, 
they've only ever really been managed internally by a reasonably well-meaning board that had someone that had some financial background and they did some stuff, but it's never really been professionally managed and reviewed. And just once you come in there as a professional, like there's stuff to change. When you get into larger uh, in, in endowments and foundations and the like, like I'm going to presume a lot of the folks you work with, you are not the first time there's ever been a financial advisor on on the case. So like, is is everybody else just that bad that when you come no. in, oh, <laughs> the stuff y'all need to fix because your prior yeah. advisor didn't know what That's they were doing? That's a good doing. question too. Like, no, but, but let me- let, broken? Yeah. Well, we are working with small and mid-sized organizations that, you know, um, everybody's wearing a lot of hats typically. Okay. So that is our space. But I will say previously uh, in my history, um, we were probably working with more of the masters of the universe clients that were bigger with very, very high-end, sophisticated donors. Um, but they also, way back then, remember, you know, I started doing institutional advising. No, no one was really doing it. And we're talking about 1990. And um, I didn't know what I was doing. And so there weren't a lot of competitors. And, but I was going in with this approach. Let me understand your organization. Let me understand, you know, cash flows in and out. Let me understand your debt. Let me understand, you know, your struggles. Let me understand your spending from the endowment and what percentage of the operating budget it supports. All of those things, nobody was doing it. And by the way, not many people do it now. So when you do that, it's it's how you get to are the investments appropriately managed given the real goals and objectives and needs of the organization. But back then, we were dealing with much bigger institutions. And I would say, um, maybe it was before this, but for me and my experience um, through the GFC, um, we were completely disrupted. And we can talk about why, but it, it was a, a light bulb kind of went off for me that I cannot build a firm that transitions to the next gen with these kinds of master of the universe, big endowments, foundation clients, because everybody's in the space now. Fees are being compressed turnover. There's so much fiduciary fatigue. Your, your um, decision makers are changing all the time. I can't do this with my team. You know, 30 years from now, there's not going to be a business. Um, so our business now, just to be clear, is probably, and I it might have this a little bit wrong, but 22 small to mid-sized institutions. So we're not talking about you know, 500, a billion dollars, you know, we never were in the over $1 billion space because those, those kinds of clients always had internal, um, their internal resources and their own, you know, investment resources and CIOs. But we were the outside CIO for, um, I would say, mid-size institutions starting out when I started out. And now I would say we're in this kind of small to mid-size space where, yes, people need us to help them with all kinds of things beyond investing. Um, and, so. and and just when you, for those who aren't familiar, when you say small to mid-size institutions, what, what kind of asset base are we talking about in practice? Um, 10 million to maybe a hundred million. Okay. Okay. You know, we do have larger clients than that, but I think that's really a sweet spot 
to 150 million maybe, because those folks really need the knowledge and expertise of a team like ours that really understands now. And and the other thing I guess I would say is what I've learned is to focus on the things that we care about, that we understand. So we're not, you know, managing, although I have done this, by the way, Taft-Hartley plans or you know, um, municipalities. We don't do that. It's not-for-profits. It's in the areas that we really care about. If you've gone on to our website, you'll, you'll see that. It's access to education, the arts, health and wellness. Um, mostly, that's where we end up. So in not-for-profits in those areas, we really understand them. I mean, I can go into an art gallery <laughs> And um, really understand what their issues are. I can go into a smaller, mid-sized independent school or a public school uh, university and understand, and our team can. Um, we can deal with a community foundation because we have experience. So we're not all over the place in dealing with all kinds of institutions. So I would say 10 to 150 million in segments around education, healthcare, the arts. So- can you help us visualize a little more? Like what what kinds of I guess this problems are they having or challenges are they having that you have to build to? Like when you say, you know, we we we've built to a school system, we built to an art gallery, like mm-hmm. what are the differences in their needs and dynamics and how does that show up when you get down to how they're actually being invested? Okay. So let me try to give you a specific kind of little mini case study. Um a handful of our clients are college universities that are small to mid-size that are enrollment-driven. And so when enrollment drops off, there's a lot of challenges and there's a lot of competition in um, education now, as, as you know. And I think based on our team's experience and my own personal experience chairing college boards and, and being involved um, philanthropically in that space, um, we can come with a different kind of mindset and skill set around um, – we, we understand the kind of strategic issues that a college or university like that might be having. And so we can right-size the liquidity in their endowment. We can look down the road a few years and enrollment trends and understand if there's going to be more stresses and more spending out of the endowment and how much, for example, how much liquidity we need to have. We've been in, in, we've been able to negotiate with bankers around um, lines of credit and other things and restructure debt with those kinds of clients because we understand them. Um, We've been able to work with auditors because we understand deeply alternative investments. I hate that word, by the way, but we've been early adopters of all kinds of alternative investments. So you can really um, get inside of things. And and actually, some of these small to mid-sized colleges really could use the power that comes from putting in some kinds of private equity or private credit or real estate, but they don't necessarily have the bandwidth in their administrative office to deal with the auditors and to really understand it or sell it to the board. Um, we can do that so that they tend to look more like a larger um, aspiring, a school that they would aspire to be in terms of their endowment and how it is positioned without getting them in liquidity trouble. So that would be one example. 
And so lots of, it sounds like lots of dynamics around just really understanding their their cash flows as an institution and whether and to what extent they're they're drawing on the dollars because it tends to be really long-term money, which on the one hand takes you in a direction of very long-term growth and and being comfortable with some illiquidity, uh, but they may have some very real cash flow needs because the endowment really might support a core of what they're doing. And so you you're you're balancing. I mean, I, we do that to individual. We do that with individual clients as well. But of course, yeah. it sounds like even more so balancing some what may be very sizable short term liquidity needs with what also might be some very long term growth objectives that really don't have a liquidity obligation. And you exactly you're, you deal with more of more of both extremes at the same time. Exactly. Understanding what's restricted, what's unrestricted. That's where you can really get into, you know, we have great people, but um, longtime um, team members, advisors who are really good at this. But just understanding what can be earmarked as a really long-term investment, to your point, by just understanding the liquidity, the restrictions, everything, and then thinking outside of the box on some of the short-term spending needs. And, um, you know, again, understanding um, what in this example, what the enrollment picture looks like, what the donor base looks like. Is a is the donor base pretty um, solid and reliable? Is there a one-time large gift coming in? All of those things. And it's not, this is not dissimilar to really understanding a sophisticated family or a wealthy family. Um, some of the money is short-term and some of it is legacy. And, and then, you know, setting up a family foundation. I mean, we, because we have experience in the institutional side, these kinds of conversations are easier, I think, for us with families. So you mentioned earlier that a, a, a part of what you do is putting these portfolios through stress tests to understand some of their exposure as well. So. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you actually use for stress testing? Like, is is this a is yeah. this a technology yeah. software analysis thing? You've got a tool that you like. Is this an internal you know, sp- spreadsheets that you've built over the time? No, what, no. What is stress yeah, I mean, testing now like it used you? to be. It used to be. You know, I joke. It used to be me in in a cubicle with a calculator, mm-hmm. but um, hidden levers. We use hidden levers, which I think a lot of people are yep. familiar with or have seen. That's that. I think it's a really good tool. Um, so we use that across the board, and um, that's been super helpful um, to for committees, individuals. Um, yeah, that's that's. So what what led you to to hidden levers? You know, there's there's lots of tech out there to. to I wish on I this. had the right person on this oh. call to answer that question, but um, you know, Rick Van Kieran, who's my, you know, I met Rick when he was 26, and I, I'm gonna say he's close to my age. I'm older than him, but he's been with me a really long time, and he would be the one to tell you all okay. the pros and cons around all the other stress tests. But I, from my standpoint, since I am the least technologically proficient, um, it's really easy to use (laughs) and it's powerful. So we used to do all kinds of, you know, Monte Carlo and all kinds of things, but um, hidden levers is a pretty sophisticated stress test. And, and I think we're, you know, I think our team is continually looking at a lot of different technology that might be better. Um, 
or, you know, has decided, you know, kind of across the board, we could talk about technology, although it's kind of a scary topic for me. You never know what I'm going to say, but I think we have pain points around technology as all firms do. Um, And if something's working, just like my, you know, comment earlier, we don't fix what's working really well, but we do have other pain points around technology right now that we're kind of researching what to do. Um, And a lot of our technology, it it was like when I left, when I left the wirehouse um, industry and went first to a large RIA and then started my own shop. Um, I the, the first thing I remember thinking is, oh my gosh, there is no one at Smith Barney, Morgan Stanley now, or Goldman or any of these places, Merrill Lynch, understand how wonderful it is to be able to solve a problem using technology because these were all these closed architecture, compliance-oriented um, firms. And so we are constantly, you know, reevaluating technology. And I would say in on our team, you know, we have some really smart people. Um, Joe Zappia, who came on board several years ago. Um, Rick Van Curen, who, as I said, has been with me for like, you know, I don't know, 30 years or something crazy. But they're there. And we have a lot of younger people and they come to us and say, hey, I got a better idea. And we listen to it and we vet it. Um, um, and once in a, you know, in a while, I'm like a blind squirrel that comes across something technology-wise, and I'm like, hey, let's let's take a look at this, you know, a identify thing or whatever, which we we did look at and we are using. So, I was struck by your comment earlier that you 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 had started in sort of the mega institutions and didn't like the future outlook there. I guess sort of it's so it's so competitive and so what have you done for me lately or like what were your performance results lately uh, and the fiduciary fatigue of like continuously managing a continuously rotating investment committee that it sounded like you had you had sort of consciously moved away from large institutions and into the small to mid sized institutional space I, but help me understand how do you not still live the same dynamic in a in a small to mid-sized institutional world where I, I feel like there's still going to be a lot of living by your latest investment performance results and the the what have you done for me lately phenomenon. Like mm-hmm. what makes what makes it so different in small to mid-sized firms or what are you what are you doing to try to manage to that when you're working with um small it's to a good question. I think I think um I would have said there's the small to mid-sized space, if you can really help leverage um, the investment committee and and educate the board and help the admin people, um, I think they see a lot more value in that. Um, there's, I think it's there. It's still a lot about, and I, I think this is good. You know, I, I think that our culture is about accountability, fiduciary. You know, people talk the talk, um, but we've had to walk it forever. Um, you know, showing transparent results, net of fees, um, doing all the things that you have to do as a fiduciary. We've been doing since it wasn't, you know, a buzzword. 
Um, so I don't know that it's that different other than the fees were getting so compressed because there was so much competition. And I want to just go back and say that uh, <laughs> I didn't consciously choose to get out of that space. It happened um, because of a small little lawsuit that I was involved in with Citigroup when I left. Um, my business was completely disrupted and I had to think about, you know, how do I create a stickier business that can transition to the next gen? And I just find it to be, I don't know if this is the right way to describe it or my folks would describe it this way, but small to mid-sized institutions are kinder and gentler. <laughs> and um, they do care about results and accountability and all the things the larger institutions care about, but they value us more. Um, they value our experience, our expertise, and um, we want to help them get to wherever they want to be aspirationally. And um, we're able to dig in more around the organizational issues than you can in a larger institution. So I think that's the best answer I can give. I've never been asked that question. I think it's a great question. Well, I mean, you make, to me, a powerful point of, of just saying like, yeah, it is a lot about accountability for investment results. Like you have to kind of be good at it and then they stick around and that's why your homepage is the art of serious investing is a right. is a is a is a commitment that i i know to me there's there there is a sort of simplicity in at least how i in interpret your response which is like well if you're really putting resources towards your investment process and you're showing up with reasonable results then yeah like you can hold on to them because you have reasonable results. Right. And there aren't many people or organizations that are out there that can say, we've been doing this for 30 years and we have a team, you know, around it and we understand you. And, um, you know, so I, I think it's a really good business, but it is a business that requires specific expertise and resources. And it isn't as profitable as the high net worth space. It's not. Um, so you have to accept that if you're in it. But I, I think our history is unique and that that's where we basically started because at the time I took on my first institution or was fortunate enough for them to hire me. I have no idea why they did that. But um, at that time, we only had, I only had a handful of very high net worth clients that I closed and I got in a space and I just loved it because you constantly were challenged. You constantly were being held accountable, which I really liked. And um, you had to bring people to consensus who were at odds. And I loved that about it. And I think we're really good at that. I think that's another thing that um, when you have multiple decision makers, whether it's in an institution or family dynamics, I think it's really key to have that skill set. So I just thought it was super fun and challenging and I never could know enough. And so that's why I got into the space and became somewhat well known in it and cared about it so much um, and tried to create a lot of best practices around it when I was at um, whatever the firms were, all of the firms that started at Lehman, Shearson, Lehman that became Hutton and Smith Barney and whatever Citigroup. <laughs> so what does the fee structure look like? 
Like, how does that actually work in the institutional realm? You know, the the um, wealth end is sort of the proverbial one percent with breakpoints as you get larger. Uh, like, what are, what are typical fees in this small to mid sized endowment realm? I think it's not out on our ADV. I think it's all out there transparently, and I don't want to misquote it, but you know, it's it's somewhat similar. It's not decidedly different than high net worth. It's just that, you know, as you get up to like you know fifty million, a hundred million, but I mean, at a hundred million, you might be at twenty five, thirty basis points, something like that. Just to give okay. you an example, I hope that's right, but yeah, blended. Okay. Um, it might not so, be that even that high, but you know it is lower for sure. And and our for you know our industry, as you point out, we're kind of AUM oriented. So um, it is it is nice to get the bigger clients from an AUM standpoint. But when you're running a business, you're kind of looking at um, what's the profitability and what are the resources around all of these types of clients. So um, I think there's, there's a great deal of value to having an institutional business within um, an RIA. I, I do think it makes us different and it makes us jump higher, farther, have different investment ideas, um, think differently, be more accountable, be more transparent. I just think that's in our DNA. And as you, so I guess help me understand, you know, just when I think nominally, like, uh, you know, getting 20, 30 basis points on a, on a hundred million dollars, like that adds up to a pretty good amount of revenue. So like, what, what do you, what do you have to do for these institutions on, I guess, like a, just an ongoing year round basis? What has to get done that like one institution that's paying a, well, a I guess I would your say, check yeah, like, still I, takes that much intensiveness. Yeah, I think it's that, um, well, first of all, you know, I guess the statistics are that the average institutional client stays with an advisor for four years. Um, so the average high net worth client, it's much longer. And I think our average is much longer too. But um, again, there's a lot of turnover. So you do a lot of upfront work to understand the client. A lot goes into really um, all of those organizational aspects, understanding that, that I, I mentioned before. Um, at this point in our history, we're doing a lot of research on everything. So our private clients benefit there is a lot of complicated work that goes into understanding an organization and um, and managing money. And most of the time, vetting all of these, um, usually when you, you get an institutional client, there are complicated investments in the portfolio. And a, and a lot of times things you haven't seen before. So if you go back to like not fixing what isn't broken, you can't know if it's good or bad until you actually do the underlying due diligence and understand it. Because you're dissecting all their existing right. less liquid alternatives that don't necessarily have the most information out there, but you right. have to get a clear understanding of what it is if you're going to provide recommendations on it. Right. And and you know, to be fair, again, if these are um, 
if these are funds or something that we get familiar with, the next time they raise a fund or whatever, and we have a relationship, we've gotten some fantastic ideas this way. And we've learned a lot. So I'll give you another, an example of a college that's our client, has been our client for many, many years. But during, we were high, well, they, they, were, we, they hired us during the, after the great financial crisis and they had a liquidity problem and they had, you know, they were kind of upside down because they had too much in privates and their solution when we got there was when we were hired was, well, we, we just need to sell some of the stuff. And that's when we learned about secondaries <laughs> because we knew we had to understand everything they had. And then we had to figure out how to sell it. It's not a public market. It's not there's a secondary market. These are small to kind of mid-size, medium-sized pieces of private equity or private credit or private real estate. And then we figured out that the buyers um, for the things that could be sold wanted to take, you know, wanted to give us a huge discount to buy um, an existing private equity stake, let's say. And they were really good investments. <laughs> So I looked at my team and I said, we want to be buyers, not sellers. We want to start buying this stuff, not selling it. And it's cool. how we learned about secondaries and started putting them in portfolios, both high net worth and institutional portfolios. And now it's a pretty, as you know, um, a lot of people understand secondaries and it's a it's a good size um you know, market, but but back then I I knew nothing about it, and and because of this college, we learned about it, and then we advised them not to sell the things that that um, you know were sellable, and the things that weren't sellable we couldn't do anything about. But that's how we helped them get a line of credit and fix their problem and restructure other things in the portfolio. So there can be a lot of work like that, and then there can be a lot of great ideas that come out of it. So. So what does ongoing servicing look like, right? In the, in the wealth end, obviously, or, or typically we meet with, client, with at least our strongest clients two to three times a year is pretty typical for most advisors. Mm -hmm. Like, is there a ongoing service calendar structure from the, in the institutional realm for you as well? Yeah. And so there's um, actually our team and I'm going to credit Rick Van Kieran and, um, the people at LVW for this, not me, but they, they've come up with this governance calendar and the governance calendar is, you know, quarterly, four quarters and, and different things occur at different meetings. You know, some of the meetings are more educationally oriented. Some of the meetings are more kind of standard, you know, meetings. It just depends. Like there may be one meeting where, um, asset allocation and benchmarking is done. And that's the other thing in the institutional space. You know, when you talk about accountability, I think it it's, I think we've been honed by being in this space because a lot of colleges and universities, especially not so much others, but colleges, colleges and universities benchmark a lot against their peers um, in terms of endowment performance. So um, we've, you know, we spend usually one meeting looking at whatever study comes out, Nakuba or whatever it is, 
um, asset allocation relative to other similarly sized institutions. So that might be January and February. And then um, the next meeting might be reviewing spending, reviewing investment policy, whatever. And then the next quarter might be... um, I don't know, um, could be some kind of um, stress testing or educational meeting or something around ESG. We let the client drive the governance calendar. We don't drive that. We just say, what is the most, you know, what are the most important things here? There are all these standard things that we do. But from a fiduciary standpoint, what are the other things we should be doing? Um, So there is this kind of governance calendar. One thing I will tell you that's different Um, post-COVID is that um, some of our clients are going back to more in-person meetings and others aren't. You know, others are maybe two meetings a year in person and two aren't. And that's being driven a lot by the people sitting around the room that are, you know, um, board members or investment committee members or finance committee members. And that's the other aspect of this that I, I didn't really mention. There's always a finance committee and an investment committee. They're not the same typically in our world. And we have to sit on both or we have to move across both of those and understand how they intersect. Because again, the investments don't live in a parallel universe to the finances of a college or a university or a not-for-profit. So um, so there's, you know, there might be a joint meeting with a finance committee or a board meeting. So we let the organization help us define the governance calendar. So is there a sample of this that, that you can share with folks who are listening, just who want to see like a version of what this looks like? Absolutely. Yeah, we will definitely do that. But, you know, it, it's also helpful in family meetings to do this with big families, which we haven't talked at all about because, you know, most of our business now um, is more high net worth, ultra high net worth. And it's not that the institutional business is small. It's just much smaller than it used to be in AUM. Um, but it's, it's still a very significant business and the best practices around governance apply to multi-generational wealth and family offices. And, you know, um, so I think it, think it's probably useful and I'm happy to share it. Awesome. Awesome. So that for those who are listening, this is episode 345. So just, if you go to com slash three, four, five, we'll have links out to the, the LVW governance calendar. If you want to see what this what this looks like in the institutional context similar to what I know some firms now are doing with client service calendars in the in the individual wealth context there so, are also um, there are also different I, I might be able to give you a couple other things that we do that might be helpful sure. to people as well you know some um, just there's things have been developed over time that have been helpful in communicating to multiple fiduciaries. So there may be two or three things that um, I can I can send your way, and if you think it's helpful, you can share it. Awesome, I appreciate that. So again, uh, episode 345. So if you go to kits.com/slash/three-four-five, we'll we'll have some of the materials uh, for. What, what Lori's firm has figured out in the hard way of iterative <laughs> developments as we go through. All right. So, so what, I guess just one other question, Lori, in this domain, like just what do you, you know, when you live this world of, you know, always having to come back to, to talking about benchmarks and talking about performance results, because that just, that is part of the environment if you're working with an investment committee. Uh, like, 
what do you do when you hit the inevitable year where you're trailing? I mean, we said earlier, you know, sort of tongue in cheek, like, well, you know, clients always judging you by what you've done lately isn't such a big deal if you're like good at investing and like getting good results. But even good investment strategies have years and cycles where they are mm-hmm. not so in favor and may not show as well to a benchmark. So yep. like, how do you guys handle it when you get to those those scenarios, those moments where you're not just staring down a client, you're staring down like a whole investment committee that's drumming their fingers yeah. on their table and staring at you? Well, I think two things. First, honesty. Like what's what's market related and what is a mistake and um, education uh, are really key. So we have um, an outliers report that we have developed in um, institutional meetings that we sometimes use in family meetings too. It depends on the sophistication level and what too much information is just too much information sometimes. But um, it's important to look at the contribution of returns and understand, you know, what's market related and what is maybe this investment is out of favor and it's not a qualitative issue. Um, So I think this, we have this outlier report where we talk about, you know, whether something has performed really well and it's outside of what we would have expected or poorly and how that has impacted returns. It's a little bit wonky, but, um, but it's helpful to educate people. And then sometimes you make a mistake and it can cost you relative to benchmarks and you have to say, look, um, and, and it's not like, um, this happens overnight. We, because we're constantly communicating with clients, we may get to the point where we say, look, this particular investment is under review. We're a little bit concerned about this or or whatever. Um, but I think honesty and um, education and showing attribution and contribution to results is what helps. Here's what's going on in the market. You know, this year, technology's on fire and value isn't, and we're value tilted, you know? I mean, and here's why, and here's why we're, we're convicted in our position and, and how you're weighted. And I mean, that's what you have to do. And the other thing that's been really helpful for me to learn and teach folks is the meeting does not occur at the meeting. It occurs before the meeting. (laughs) So figure out who has the power in the room, who are the people that other people listen to. We have our, you know, we haven't talked about the other side of the business, but we have a lot of professional investor clients that run hedge funds of various types that are real estate, institutional real estate investors, our credit people. And um, those people are you know, it's it's good and it's bad. It makes you better at what you do, but you have to be talking with them. And that can't occur during the meeting, especially if you're underneath a benchmark. So I think it helps to have conversations, not just with the investment committee chair, but with the people who really understand portfolios and can, you know, understand the contributors to performance, the detractors and and what what you think about, you know, kind of the performance and what you think going forward and getting them to um, buy in. But again, it's always being honest. I mean, sometimes you make a mistake and you have to say, look, this investment just didn't work out and it cost us X basis points or whatever. 
But that that's an interesting point. So this like the meeting doesn't occur at the meeting, it occurs before the meeting, because when you're talking with the committee, the reality is there are probably a few people who are going to drive the decision or the outcome that the others are going to look to. And so if you've got their buy-in, the committee's likely going to come with you. And if you want their buy-in, you need to not wait until the meeting itself to have absolutely. this conversation. You need to be meeting with them beforehand. You need to be sounding them out. You need to be getting them on the phone or the Zoom for a lunch or yeah. a coffee or whatever it is. And like that's part of the the dynamic of managing that committee environment is meeting with the committee members offline beforehand to know where they are and see if they've got buy-in to what you're going to be recommending so it's not a surprise at the meeting. It's absolutely true. And also, um, you know, new committee members to that fiduciary fatigue thing, you know, I think advisors lose institutional clients or any situation. It could be a family where the kids get involved. The kids are of age and you've never talked to the kids before. You know, that's where you lose clients. So you have to be having those conversations beforehand. You can't wait. You cannot wait until the meeting occurs because it's too late. So out of uh, out of curiosity, you were, you were kind enough earlier to say you you were willing to share the governance calendar. Is there like a an example of this outliers report that you can sure. share as well? Just because I mean, what you're yeah. describing, right? Like we can all say, you know, well, this was market, and this was, um, uh, you know, the thing was out of favor, and this was like, okay, maybe this was even out of outside of what we expected. Maybe the things just really really not doing well. Uh, but like how to actually visualize that or put it into a report to clients, I think is still a challenge for a lot of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if if you're willing to share sure. that, we'd love to share Absolutely. that with listeners as well. Yeah, be I would be happy to. Awesome, thank you. So again, this is episode 345. So if you go to kitsis.com/slash/three-four-five, we'll uh, we'll have links out. So so Lori, help us understand the firm as it exists today. Like I mean, you talked about the institutional side but like overall of however you measure like asset base or or team size like just help us understand the firm as it exists today um so we i kind of referenced when i left um smith barney i joined an independent ria because i felt that our sophisticated clients needed to be in a sophisticated platform and at that time, you know, it was just organically grown five and a half plus billion dollars in assets. And a lot of that, it was 75% institutional. Um, I made some mistakes, which I'm happy to talk about because they were, that's kind of an understatement to say they were mistakes. <laughs> and then I was sued by my employer and ultimately won and they lost. But in that whole shakeup, we went from, Five and a half billion dollars to the other thing that people should know if they've never advised an institution is they will go to RFP. And I think our entire institutional client base went to RFP between being sued by Citigroup and some of the issues we had at the RIA we joined previous to forming, previous to my forming LVW. So our going to RFP means meaning basically they, uh, they decided they were not confident in you and opened up to to other advisors to make pitches yes. and a repress, request for proposal. Well, when you're sued by the largest bank in the world and you also have issues that they can sense where you've landed, um, 
you know, that's the other thing that's really important to, to mention about institutions. There's usually an RFP process. And oftentimes there's an RFP process when you're still hired and they're happy because they're just doing a fiduciary review. They've got an obligation for, for due diligence. Right. So you have to like, what high net worth client does that? (laughs) So that's what makes the business so difficult because you're constantly having to, you know, you're constantly having to show your value um, and you know that you're under review. And so, especially when decision makers change. So in this case, because of some of my missteps and some of the things that happened in, um, in the Citigroup, situation, I knew that this was going to be a problem. And so our- Because from their end, just they, you know, if you're an investment committee at the end of the day, like, look, Lori may be totally fine and completely in the right, but if you're the investment committee fiduciary, you just don't necessarily want to put your fiduciary liability on the line to hope that this whole lawsuit thing against Lori works out. You put it out to RFP, you accept someone that has a clean record, and like you're not getting in trouble yeah. for that as a fiduciary. You know, in, in, in fairness, I, I think the Citigroup lawsuit was less of a distraction than joining the RIA we joined um, and then finding out that they didn't have the technology we needed. Uh, okay. And that was really hard. Um, and so, you know, institutions need rigor around the most basic things that I thought were so basic. I mean, my team had helped design the reporting systems. Um, they were called Orion at Smith Barney. And so we were so deep in that kind of stuff, you know, reporting systems, we knew them all. And this firm just didn't have what we needed. And, you know, that we missed that, that, that basically what they were offering us was something in beta test. So there were a lot of errors or a lot of things going on. And when I finally left that firm, when the lawsuit against me um, by Citigroup wasn't settled. We won. Um, it cost me a lot, um, personally, financially, every the combination of things. And I kind of sensed that a lot of our clients were going to go to RFP. So it's kind of ironic or <laughs> a little bit sad to think that a five and a half billion dollar business completely transferred over to this RIA. Completely. They just thought I was doing the right thing. They thought an independent fiduciary model made sense. And we ended up um, we ended up losing a lot of those clients and then restructuring the firm. So that's a long-winded way of saying today, as we sit, we're about $2 billion um, and we're probably the inverse. We're probably 75% high net worth, ultra wealthy, and 25% institutional. And again, as I referenced, more small and mid-sized institutions. Some of our you know, legacy clients are still with us, but that's kind of how we're structured. And, and, and if you just separate out, the high net worth business has been um, a really terrific business, but we, we did not have those kinds of clients um, before this all happened. And I think, you know, Necessity is the mother of invention. So we have about, I think we have 24 um, people. We have eight advisors, uh, four people that are full-time management, a great COO with a Fortune 500 background, Um, six or six and a half CSA operations people, four, four people in research and training, 
and um, two marketing and other. So I think it's about 24 right now. So I'm, I'm fascinated by the, that shift. So, so if I heard correctly, like as you did the breakaway from Smith Barney, big firm environment where you built five and a half billion dollars in mostly large institutions and went to the RIA channel talking about, you know, benefits of transparency and fiduciary and all that in the RIA channel, uh, uh, the business all came with you to the RIA. The mm-hmm. core problem was that when the RIA turned out not quite to have the depth of platform that you thought you were getting when you went there, it was it was that lack of capabilities that spooked firms or, or spooked yeah. the institutions, I guess, then compounded with, and then the prior firm decided to come after you as well. Right. Citigroup. So I could give you the timeline. So people yeah. probably gasp when they hear this. So August 31st, 2008, we la- I resigned from Smith Barney. And, and, and was that, sorry, just to ask quickly, was right. that sure. uh, like because of the crazy stuff? I mean, you're in the middle mm-hmm. of the financial, like August 31st, bear's gone down, layman's going to implode in about six weeks. Yep. <laughs> uh, like, were yep. you transitioning because- no, financial crisis was, craziness is no, happening and I want out of here? Or no, was that just you were no. living your own timeline and that was just the coincidental? I was living my own timeline. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, we had been working on it. You know, look, I, I was trying to make it work with Citigroup for, for a long time. Um, and I felt that the business was changing, that it was going to be mostly independent someday. I my I get my timelines wrong a lot. And, you know, being early is the same as being wrong. <laughs> and um, I also say pioneers, people call me a pioneer, usually they're shot and killed. Um, so I just was early, but I had been working on this um, exit well, I, at the same time, I was just hoping that Citigroup would build what I really wanted to be spun out myself and a group of other like minded people who are doing really sophisticated investment advisory for institutional clients and high net worth clients. We wanted a separate, we wanted to be spun out. And they created this kind of separate entity, but they never really resourced it. And I just was like, okay, my kids are a little bit older. I can do this. And so hired an investment banker, went out, looked at everybody, but I wasn't looking for a check. I was looking to go to a better place to serve my clients, grow the business and be a part, be an equity owner and be a part of something bigger ultimately. And um, it just so happened. And I had, you know, I have to go back in time and say to you that it's kind of like getting married and going down the aisle and wanting to run away. I mean, in those last moments before I just signed on the dotted line, I had doubts, but I still did it. And that was probably a lot of deal fatigue, a lot of lawyering, a lot of whatever. And we left, I left, I resigned August 31st, 2008. Um, My team followed the next day. Um, I don't know exactly. I think we had like 12 people. Um, And then um, almost immediately Citigroup put a a TRO on me, a restraining order, and it was thrown out immediately. So I thought, okay, I'm fine. Um, I joined the large one of the larger RIAs in the country. Um, 
the financial crisis hits in full force. And what did Warren Buffett say? The tide went out and you see who's swimming naked. Yep. The tide went out. I saw the financials of the firm and I was like, oh man, I'm in trouble. And um, because I knew that- The tide went out and you saw the financials, like not of the firms you left, the one you went to. The one I went to, um, how what the impact was. I knew what our business looked like and that all our clients had come and we would be in good shape, but I couldn't control what was happening to them. At the same time, we're porting over clients and realizing the technology doesn't work. Um, and there were variety and <laughs> there were a lot of other things that occurred. Um, but then within a couple weeks, I have a lawsuit on my desk. Um, and I from, then realized from, from Citigroup. From Citigroup now. So they yep. hit you with the TRO, temporary restraining order. Got that was thrown, thrown out. out so you could keep going with the clients. And then yep. they hit you with full on lawsuit. So what was the, what was the lawsuit? Oh, well, I think it's a matter, well, it is a matter of public record. So I think if you went on the FINRA website or whatever, you could find it. Um, that's why I can talk about it. But I can't, I can't specifically go through all of the counts against me and my team. Um, I, cause I can't recall all of them, sure. but there are Indeed. things like corporate rating, intellectual so, property theft, you know, a bunch so of stuff like that. I mean, just it's all the things that go with. Lori, you took clients and we're suing you for taking yeah. clients. That's basically mm-hmm. what it came down to. Yep. And and I was told by, you know, we had great lawyers in New York City who were really expensive and they said, this is never going to go to arbitration. It, they'll settle. Don't, it'll, and I was, I was like, settle? I didn't do anything wrong. I left all the files, everything. I didn't take a thing. I followed the broker protocol, all the legal things to the T. My team did is the same. I don't understand this. You know, I was just kind of like fighting for the right. I'm like, I didn't yeah. do anything wrong. And they're like, well, you know, this is how this works. I'm like, okay. So, but, but they'll settle and they never did. And it went to arbitration. And meantime, uh, in the meantime, things at this RAA continued to get worse. And um, finally, we went to arbitration and I think it all settled out within, um, and, and when I say settled out, we won. So let me be specific. I didn't settle, but I had to pay my legal fees. And I think that was maybe, I want to be correct on this, but I think it all took about 18 months plus, And then I exited um, the RIA. So I negotiated an exit out of there and started LVW. And that was in 2011. So, but in that process of all of that transitioning and all of that angst, we, we lost a lot of our institutional clients and had to rebuild the firm. And we did. (laughs) So... It it looks all beautiful um, in you know the media and the press, and I'm very very grateful person for everything. But that period was very difficult, very difficult. So how how much was still with you by the time like LVW got launched on your on uh, your own? I don't. I think it was about a billion something. We didn't change like maybe a billion, a billion two. I don't know exactly. It was, it's too painful wow. to even think about it, but it was, it was like, 
it was unbelievable. And I just thought, but I, I think there are two things that I, I would say to people. One, <clears throat> when this lawsuit actually went to, through FINRA to arbitration, um, and I actually had, I didn't know anything about arbitration. I'd never had a verbal complaint or a written complaint. I didn't yeah. know anything about it. And um, you get prepped by your lawyers and they'd show you, you know, a bunch of things and there's notebooks and they say, well, I might ask you about this. I might ask you about that. You know, they try to prep you, but nothing prepares you for walking into an arbitration room and realizing that these people sitting around the room who don't know really anything about you are going to decide your professional future. Really, that was the bottom line in my case, because what Citigroup was suing me for, which I will not disclose, but it probably could probably could figure it out. It, it just would have put me out of business. I, I would not. And right, so just the, the, the way the way you took our clients shows up in like actual legal terms, right? intellectual property theft for the client data and all that just it's mm -hmm. it's an ugly black mark to put it ugly i just thought i'm i'm gonna write it i mean financially in every way my it's game over so i went through you know the the arbitration actually in the room and so did i you know i i have to credit my team um they are just unbelievable people to have followed me and to have had to go through that was not a great experience um but it makes you stronger <laughs> and i just got out of that room and i thought oh my god you know, and I literally got on my knees and I said, you know, I know this is not what I had envisioned as my future, but, you know, I just prayed about it. I, and I, I can't, you know, I can't um, characterize it any other way. And within, I, I feel like it was within a really short window of time that was not supposed to happen. One of my team members called me and said, hey, I think we won this thing. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I just went on the FINRA website. We won. And I'm like, you're kidding me. Oh my God. I guess I'm supposed to still do this. <laughs> so um, at this point, we hadn't lost any clients. The client loss occurred after that. So once I formed LVW, it was like RFP, 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 you know, uh, just was, I knew I, in my gut, I, I had I knew it was going to happen and I would have to rebuild. And, um, interesting. Yeah. So the, yeah. um, they try, I guess sort of like they trusted you through the first transition, but they got spooked when there was a second one. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. And you know what? I would have done the same thing. <laughs> so you couldn't fault them for, I mean, it was a, it was really painful. I mean, it was a, a combination of circumstances. And what I would say to anybody is, if you put yourself out there and you want to grow and you really want to make a difference, there are going to be painful things that happen. And if you can move through them, um, I, you know, I, I would say right now this business will last at least another 30 years. And I am, and without me, I am like useless overhead. I mean, I, I feel like my team has done so much, you know, they do so much every day. There's so much more process in place. The business, talk about stress testing. You know, th this would be a very good lesson for anybody building an RIA, stress test your own business. You don't want to have concentration in your business, which we did. 
you know. And and the other thing I would say to you, Michael, is um, unusually, maybe because I was a woman, um, I was one of the first in certainly in institutional advisory. Um, I never got a piece of business from Smith Barney or the firm. These were all things that I organically got on my own with my team. So it wasn't like I left Citigroup and I had all this split business and they were coming after me for that. I didn't, you know, so I was just in shock that I actually was sued, but then I had to deal with it and it was my choice to leave and I had to deal with it and um, move through it. And I'm the one who did my due diligence on the firm I joined so um, I'm the one who did the due diligence on the RIA that I joined, and I obviously made some mistakes. So I had to live with that and be accountable myself and re-engineer and think out of the box and figure out what I was really, really good at and what my team was good at and um, rebuild the firm. And with the help of my great longtime team members and um, also an you know, uh, a gentleman who joined me from Wells Fargo, Joe Zappia, and um, others. I we've built a great firm, I think. So I'm I'm struck by just some of the dynamics of this. Like, you know, as you framed it, the like they tried to hit you with the TRO, it got thrown out. They went after you with the lawsuit. Even the lawyers said, like, there isn't going to be a great case here. I mean, you you won in an arbitration setting that has an industry tendency to favor favor the large firm incumbents is I'm struck by it like yeah it feels like sadly one of those scenarios where like they weren't even coming after you for you they were coming after you to make an example of other advisors who might also be thinking about breaking away with multi-billion yeah. dollar teams and you ended up on like the unfortunate receiving end of that mm -hmm. because well, as you said, like you, you were the one who pioneered it, so that means you're the one that gets shot at. <laughs> you're the shot. Most. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't. I don't think it was about me at all. I don't. I think it was um, about just sending a message. I do, and um, I think you know that shouldn't. There should be something done about that, but you know that's for another podcast. I'm struck by the the irony now. Hearing the timeline, like. <laughs> it wasn't the breakaway that that cost the client relationships. It wasn't even the lawsuit per se. That's not when the RFPs actually started happening. It was nope. when the place that you landed turned out not to be the landing place and you had to do a second switch and the second switch spooked is, yep. is ultimately it sounds like what what spooked exactly. the That's exactly what happened. The, the yeah. institution. So so I guess in retrospect like like, what did you miss or like, what do you wish you did differently in the due diligence phase to yeah, have made different lot. decisions um, about platforms? Because <laughs> I'm like, I mean, this is like the infamous challenge for anyone breaking away. You have to figure out what platform to go to because everybody tells a pretty good story. Uh, and then you have to figure out which one's really going to be able to deliver what you need. So like this is where I'm going to say something that some of your listeners may be eye rolling at, but culture does matter and it's not amorphous. And I think the the one main thing I missed and what my gut was telling me is we were very different in how we approached clients solving the problem and everything you and I talked about earlier about institutions and investing first, they were 
investing was not, it was not the first thing they did. It was all about, and there's nothing wrong with planning. We do deep planning. Planning is very key, but they were, they had insurance routes. They were planners. Um, they did not understand our business. They had hubris. Um, and I missed it. I, I didn't, and I don't know if I really missed it. I just ignored my gut. So that was one thing that I'll, I'll never do that again. <laughs> and then um, I did rely on some other people, not my team, but on some other people to diligence aspects of this deal. And I do think I also was outlawed. <laughs> and you get to a point where there is this deal fatigue and you just go, okay, I, we've been, we're, we've been into the weeds and the minutiae and I've just got to take this leap of faith. And what I've learned from the whole experience when I've done a postmortem on it, which I have several times, um, this is a quote from one of my closest friends in the industry. When I was beating myself up, when all these RFPs were taking place and all these institutional clients were leaving and I'm forming LVW and I'm like, <laughs> all my clients are leaving. He just looked at me and he said, don't beat yourself up. You just weren't as smart as you thought you were. And I'm like, wow, you're right. But guess what? Now I'm smarter. And so I've been able to help business owners going through transactions, mergers, acquisitions, selling, identifying um, where they want to land after they sell their business, if they want to stay with the acquirer, all of the, you know, I, I know more about restrictive covenants and non-competes <laughs> than I ever. I would never know this stuff yeah. if I hadn't had all these things happen. So I'm really, I, I am not just saying this. From the bottom of my heart, I am thankful for it all. And you can't go, yeah, I if I only did this, this would have happened. That is just false thinking. And you also can't say, you know, um, I don't know. I think you have to just look at it and say all of these things led you to where you are now and where I am now is a pretty good place. <laughs> so. So as you did the transition to LVW and go out on your own, I, I guess I'm wondering like, what, you know, what did that, like, what did that due diligence look like as you were coming off of the, the challenging prior firm, like what led you to hang your own shingle instead of going, like just saying, okay, I got this platform wrong. Let me find another platform. You know, you had made a decision to pursue a platform the first time, but then hung your own shingle the second time. Like just help us understand a little more what, how you were approaching yeah. the transition when you had to do the second one and, and what was different well, in your, like your reasoning and your decision-making. I was pretty exhausted, as you might imagine, and um, but I did a lot of due diligence. And I um, back then, uh, even in 2011, the, the there wasn't this big industry around RIAs, and there weren't tons of options. Right, like um, uh, high and power I, was barely getting going. Dynasty right. only just launched, but was still a very small platform. Like there weren't there weren't a lot yes. of options yet. So I did, um, I did uh, join on to Herta Dynasty and I did a focus deal 
And the great thing about Focus was they just said, we're never going to make an entrepreneur an employee and we're going to let you do your own thing. And I was able to structure a small, what I considered to be a small transaction um, cash flow wise and do what I wanted to do and um, have their support to build out the platform. And I had learned so much from my previous experience at the RIA I was at of what kind of not to do and what I needed to do um, that um, I really had done due diligence, if this makes sense, through failure. <laughs> yeah. Because I had to do postmortem on everything and understand like what went wrong here. And mm-hmm. I have, um, I am, as I probably mentioned, uh, the least technologically oriented person. I probably said that at least once during this podcast. Um, And I have really good people around me. And I've always learned that. um, And what I would say to people is just know what you're really good at, what your passions are, and be really honest about that. And then put great people around you who do the other things better than you. And I think I've always been good at bringing together a team like that and mentoring people. Um, so I think that I had enough resources in my team to help build the right technology and platform and, um, build the firm out the way I had a vision to, after all these mistakes and, you know, missteps. So why do a transaction with focus at all? Just like what, what were they doing for you in this transaction? Um, well, the, yeah, well, the biggest thing and, and I haven't really executed on it and I I can tell you why, but the biggest reason for me was, you know, when you're five and a half billion dollars and you're a 20 something year old and you start in the industry and you become, um, not my quote, but others, a superstar and you do it organically with no referrals from the firm, no one paying attention to you, you're kind of competitive, (laughs) And you're like, I want to get back to that and I want to be bigger than that. And so um, what Focus offered was um, the ability to do deals or grow inorganically. But what I learned, and, and it was a good decision, it was not a bad decision because Focus helps with a lot of things that you know people don't see um, on the outside from compliance to education to best practices. But what, what I did it for and what it ended up being were different things um, because I really haven't, we, we have not done uh, any transactions really mm. to speak of. Because we've passed on a lot of stuff um, because of the cultural thing. Because when you have a really good business um, and it's, it's growing, which ours was, again, from you know, a pretty diminished state, but we were able to grow it organically. Um, we didn't want to do transactions that would take us off our mark. So we, we've made a couple mistakes and, and I haven't talked about subsequent mistakes. We all make them. They weren't life-threatening, but we did look at deals. We did unwind one. Um, And then in the end, we said, you know what, let's just get our house in order organically. Let's keep organically growing. And now we're kind of in a place where we'd like to do a transaction, maybe maybe a smaller one, a few hundred million, something like that, where, as you know, in the RAA space, there's a big succession issue. And I feel like we've built a firm that has a next-gen team that's fantastic. 
Um, I haven't mentioned this to you, but I will tell you that um, I have lived through some significant personal tragedy. And uh, three years ago, I, I lost my husband very suddenly. And I was literally out of the business for a year and it grew and it did really well. And um, it made me realize that everything that I always wanted professionally, I had. I had grown this business and this team that could take it over. And I had to reward them differently. And so um, Joe Zappia and Kim Pugilis, our COO, did a beautiful job at re-engineering our compensation plans, putting in deferred compensation um, for people. We've done so much work to build this business that we're kind of ready to do um, what I thought I was going to do with Focus. I was just really premature. <laughs> so can you help me understand a little more how how you've ch- like changed compensation? Just I'm, I'm always fascinated by firms retooling compensation. I feel like everybody's in a live continuous evolution of figuring out their their compensation structures. So um, yeah. like what did um, what did you do or shift? Well, again, um, there I, I'm kind of the strategist and I, I would say that Joe, Sapia, and Kim really did so much work on this benchmarking wise and um, looking at what other firms were doing and then we did something really unusual, and I'm sure other people have done this. So I'm not going to say it's an original idea, but I feel it was my idea where I was like, I need to figure out a way to reward people who are not just advisors, but operations, CSA, people, anyone in the business who's doing an outstanding job. I want to put in a deferred compensation program, and I want it to be discretionary, and I don't necessarily, you know, want to have to do it every year for the same people. It can be different people. But I want to do this because I feel really grateful that I'm still standing. This business is growing and I haven't done anything for a year. I've been out of the business. So um, that was kind of the genesis of looking at everything. And then it was like, you know, we have these really great advisors and they're young. Um, and, you know, we have we have an advisor, for example, senior advisor, who I think is 41, who's been me, with, with me since he was 19 years old as an intern, also went through this arbitration. There are people like that that deserve to be in the management company, deserve to have equity. Um, so let's be really transparent and define a pathway to become members of the management company and own equity and value it. Let's um, put in a deferred compensation program that rewards can reward anyone, not just advisors, but CSAs to um, administrative people. Anyone can get a you know deferred compensation benefit. Um, let's align our compensation program to our longstanding belief that no shirts, no skins is the only way to build a team, which we always have had compensation where it wasn't eat what you kill. That's where I came from. (laughs) That's how I was wired, but that's not how you build a team. So, um, we wanted to provide the proper incentives around, growing AUM and new AUM from existing clients. So, but we also wanted to have year-to-year stability and base salaries. So we didn't want our people to ha- that weren't in the management company or equity owners to suffer if the markets were down and the business was down. 
Um, so there had to be this kind of appropriate balance between all those things. Um, and we wanted in the end their full compensation across the board to exceed any median industry benchmarks. So that's my kind of strategic part of my brain. And then all of the devils and all of the detail um, were done by um, Joe and Kim to uh, to a large extent. They were amazing at doing this. So there's a target-based compensation for advisors. There's a new AUM bonus. There's a firm incentive bonus. And then there's something we call the KEEPS program. And that was the key, um, let me see if I get this right, the key exemplary employee program. And that was the deferred cash retention program. And, um, and then there was this clear spelling out of this path to equity um, and what was required for that and what the valuation was of our equity, et cetera. So that's what we did. And that was in uh, um, 2022. So what surprised you the most on this journey of building an advisory business? What surprised me the most? Um, how strong I actually am. <laughs> how, how strong I actually am and how much courage it takes. But it also is like the most fulfilling thing because I've always felt like I had this purpose and um and it's just been fulfilled. So I think I never had a grand plan, Michael. I never said, oh, I'm going to be a top warehouse producer. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be in the top rank. I've never had this plan at all. It was always kind of one step at a time. I'm a marathon runner. And it's how you think about a marathon. It's like you cut it into bite-sized pieces so you can handle it. I never had this grand plan that this is what I'm going to be, but it just kind of unfolded over time. And I just grew in my competencies. And the more I went through, um, the more I learned. And so I guess that's the surprise. And sometimes the learning is painful, but boy, in the end, it's, it's still rewarding. It's really rewarding. Yeah. The, um, uh, the quote that I had heard from Stephanie Bogan, who does practice management consulting the, the other week, it was um, uh, pain is just the rapid absorption of learning. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's a great quote. That, that feels pretty That's, appropriate. It does. It does. So, so you've highlighted some of the challenges, but I guess looking back, like what was the, what was the low point for you on this journey? Well, the professional low point in my life was certainly what I described that kind of, <laughs> I don't know, you know, you leave on a high point thinking you're going to go on to this great chapter of building this, being with this independent RIA and all hell breaks loose as an understatement. You know, we have the greatest financial crisis <laughs> in history. A month later, you're sued by the largest bank in the world and the firm that you joined doesn't really have what you thought they had. <laughs> And then you lose your entire business and you have to rebuild it. So that's kind of a low point, but um, yeah, yeah, pretty good one. yeah. <laughs> so, so what do you know now you wish you could like go back and tell you from like 15, 20 years ago before you started these transitions? Well, I think a few things. I, I, you know, I've always been a positive person. I hope that comes across. You know, I even with all this, I, I've always been an optimist. And, um, but I didn't live in the moment enough. I, you know, I, I have two boys who are 
amazing young men who have helped me immensely, you know, after the loss of their dad. And um, I think about them as boys and kids and trying to balance all the stuff that I had to balance. And I always had this kind of perpetually, even though I didn't have a grand plan that I'm going to be this, I always thought ahead, like I had a, like five years from now, this is where, these are my goals or whatever. And I didn't really live in the moment enough. So I think I would tell myself to like stop and, you know, kind of smell the roses <laughs> a little bit more and um, enjoy the moment. And I think the other thing I would say is that what I've learned at, uh, talking to a lot of really successful people that are clients or friends or just people in life that I've met is that um, everybody suffers from imposter syndrome <laughs> yeah. and these feelings of inadequacy and self-doubt and um, to recognize and acknowledge your achievements and take time to do that. Um, because we all suffer from that. And um, we haven't really talked about, you know, kind of the early journey of being a woman in finance and not having a finance background. And um, But we all um, feel alone in that way. And I think um, you get through it and you learn if you stay open to growing and learning, there's really nothing within reason you can't, you can't do or learn. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors, I guess in that context, like maybe young, young women coming into the industry in particular who are trying to get going in their careers today and navigate this? I think I would say um, what I said earlier about being really objective, uh, if you can do that, about what your gifts and your passions are and really objective about that. And then um, focus on something that is more than, you know, focus on a, uh, a segment in this business or an area that you can be really good at. So for example, um, we actually hired a woman, um, a young woman who was, is, is a senior advisor who came from San Diego, um, moved to upstate New York. She found us. She reached out to us. We did. We weren't hiring another advisor. And um, my advice to her was: she's she's very outgoing. She's very smart. She has every qualification in the industry. Um, is really, you know, use what you're really good at. Focus on you are a woman entrepreneur. Focus on women entrepreneurs. You can talk their talk. You you know what it's like. You are the wife of a, a retired Navy SEAL and you have four kids. <laughs> go go to where you can really be empathetic and understand people and what their challenges are and build a business around that because you can relate to them and you have the skill set and the qualifications. So find what you're passionate about, find that niche um, and go for it. And find a good mentor because I didn't have, I had a great mentor in my father figure, but I, I really had no mentors in this business. Um, I did have people that I looked up to and I tried to figure out why they were successful, but I think now it's changed a lot. And there are people like me that are willing to help and mentor. So find a good mentor or one or two or three. <laughs> so as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the things I've long observed, the word success means very different things to different people. 
And so, you know, you've had this wonderful journey of success, I guess, almost twice since you got to build it once and have a tough transition and build it a second time. So you, you, you've done the successful growth pass for the business. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, um, I, I've said this before and sometimes it shocks people, but, uh, if I died today, I feel that I would have made a difference in the industry. I would have fulfilled a purpose. I don't want to die today, but if I did, I have a lot of peace around, um, you know, kind of where, what, what my journey has looked like and what I've given back to both the industry and communities and um, things that I care about and, um, you know, the people I care about, my children, um, my family, my friends, and I'm just really fortunate to have all those people around me. Uh, so I think in the end, success is purpose and peace more than anything else. And I hope to do a lot more. Um, so I like that success is purpose and peace. Yeah, I think so. Well, thank you, Lori, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, it was really fun. I think what you're doing is wonderful. And uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.